This morning we're going to continue our study in the book of Genesis. We're going to continue looking at, uh, at the story of a man named Jacob. And, and as we kind of jump into Genesis 32, um, I just want to make sure you know my intent is to really park for the bulk of our time starting in verse 24 and the rest of the chapter. Um, it's going to take me a couple minutes to get there. Because I think in order to properly understand what happens starting in verse 24 and the rest of the chapter, to, to properly understand this interaction between, between God and Jacob that is unique, there, there needs to be a context set. And, and, I, and I, I get a little leery about saying this, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. You need to feel what Jacob is feeling before we get to, to verse 24. You need to to be able to, to put yourself in his position, in his shoes, in his place, to truly understand what it is that is happening starting in verse 24. Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Let me, let me, let me um, just, just start in verse 3. <laughs> if you can't tell, there's a potential of some significant rabbit trails this morning. So I already tried to turn this to the book of Psalms, so <laughs> we'll see how this goes. Verse 3 starts like this. It says, Jacob had sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the territory of Edom. And he commanded these messengers, you are to say to my Lord Esau, this is what your servant Jacob says. I've been staying with Laban and I've been delayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male, female slaves. I have sent this message to inform my Lord in order to seek your favor. Okay, so what in the world is happening? You need to know that Jacob has been estranged from his brother Esau. Jacob has been estranged from his older brother Esau, although it may be by just a moment or two as they're twins. But Jacob has been estranged from Esau for almost 20 years at this point. And there's a reason that Jacob is estranged from Esau for such a significant length of time. It's because... Jacob stole Esau's birthright, which was basically earth, uh, Esau's financial future. Jacob manipulated him out of his financial future. And then, a few years later, Jacob deceived his daddy Isaac and tricked Isaac into thinking, Isaac now who is of age and going blind, he tricked Isaac into thinking that Jacob was in fact Esau, and so he had Isaac give to him the special reserved blessing for the one who, who, who would continue the, the, the covenant that God had placed in Isaac's family. And so, so what happens is Jacob has actually now not just stolen the financial future of Esau, he's now taken this, this deserved blessing. And now as a result, Esau will serve Jacob. Esau is now an underling. Esau is now a servant of Jacob. And if you get to the end of chapter 27 and that whole story, what you find is Esau is so angry, he vows that he will murder his brother Jacob. And so that's why Jacob has not been around Esau for 20 years. It's not just like, oh, things just haven't worked out, travel itinerary just hasn't come to, to fruition. No, it's, it's he has been hiding for his life because Esau has sworn that he would murder him the next time he saw him. 
So now Jacob has been with Laban for 20 years. He, he served for his two wives, Rachel and Leah, which that was all jacked up from the very beginning. And then for the following six years, he worked for Laban. And the comment is made in their interaction just a couple chapters ago that, that Laban continues to change his, his income, his salary, his wage over and over again. He continues to manipulate him. And, and, and finally, it comes to this, this head where now Jacob and his wives and his children are now leaving Laban. And God has spoken to Jacob and said, I want you to return home. But there's a problem. That means he's going to have to go through the land where Esau lives. You know, his brother, the one who said, next time I see you, I'm going to kill you. So obviously Jacob's a little anxious. But it's been 20 years, right? wonder if Esau's still angry. So he, he and we, we, what we just read, he kind of subtly, so subtly, just kind of dips his toe in the water to see how Esau's doing, he, he sends his servants ahead with a message. Hey, been a long time, huh? Yeah, I've been stuck in Laban's. It's been a little rugged. But, you know, God's been very good to me. He's blessed me with all these things. My Lord Esau. See, you missed that when you first read it. That's very subtle. But what Jacob does is he actually reverses the roles that have been assigned to him through the blessing that Isaac had given. Now he refers to Esau as his Lord, and actually he makes the comment, I am your servant, Jacob. He, he basically tries to pretend like that never happened. It's just me, your humble servant, passing through, you know, wonder if you're still bent on murdering me or not. Just curious. I mean, I want to be friends, Verse 6, when those messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau. He's coming to meet you. He's got 400 men with him. <laughs> Jacob was, I think this is the understatement, greatly afraid and distressed. You think? So, so I think he gets his response. Esau responds by heading towards Jacob and bringing 400 men with him. And although there is this outlying chance that maybe this is a welcome party, Jacob is certain that this is trouble. And it says that he is greatly afraid, and he is distressed. So there's three words there, greatly afraid, distressed. Greatly means top uh, rung. This is the highest level. He's afraid. He is scared, very scared, terrified, panicked, and then distressed. That, that, that root word is to be bound up, to be tied up, to be wrapped up. Think claustrophobic. Walls are closing in on you. And Jacob is considering what may happen in this next day. What he is finding is that he's having trouble breathing. I know, I know what this means. I know where this is going. I know what I did. I know what I deserve. And in his, his thinking, he knows I cannot possibly protect myself. I cannot possibly protect these people that I love. And so he is racked with fear, anxiety, this, this soul-crushing panic of uh, distress. And so what he does, the rest of verse 7, he divides the people who are with him into two camps along with the flocks, herds, and camels, because his thinking was this. If Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, the remaining one can escape. 
So his thinking is if I divide these possessions and these people up, if I allow them to be in two separate camps, if Esau pays attention here, this one can, can then get away and, and maybe I won't lose my entire family. And then he, he continues um, down in verse 13 and, and he pulls his servants together and, and he says, okay, he takes the, the uh, gifts that he intends to give to Esau and he takes one servant and says, take this chunk of gifts and I want you to head towards Esau. And when you come to Esau and he says, so, so what is this? I want you to say, these are the belongings of, of, of my master, your servant, Jacob. And he longs to give this to you as a present. In fact, he's coming, he's right behind me. But he's not right behind him because then another servant comes with another pile of gifts, another herd, another flock to present to Esau and said, these, these are the possessions of my master, your servant, Jacob, and he longs for you to take this as a present from him. In fact, he's coming right behind me, but he's not right behind because, and it just keeps happening, wave after wave after wave. That's Jacob's plan. That visual would be certainly impressive, wouldn't it? Why is he doing that? He has a hope. Look down in verse 20, chapter 32. Jacob thought... I want to appease Esau with the gift that is going ahead of me. After that, I can face him, and perhaps he will forgive me. See, Jacob's not counting on a response of grace coming from Esau. He's not counting on Esau offering forgiveness to him. What what he is trying to do is earn Esau's favor. He's hoping it would would lead to his, his big brother accepting him instead of murdering him. Guys, we we see a pattern in Jacob. We've seen it since the very beginning. He's always working. He's always has a plan. He's always trying to get his own way. He's trying to get this blessing. He is the most self-reliant, always fighting kind of dude. He's fighting for the thing that he he wants absolutely most, which is that blessing. I mean, he's always been that one who fights. If you remember the story of his birth, right? When his mama was pregnant with both he and Esau, there was a a wrestling match going on in her belly, and she said, why is this happening to me? And God says, there are two nations inside of you, and they are going to struggle against, and the the older one is going to serve the younger, and and as they are born, he's still fighting. Jacob is always fighting, so much so that he's grabbing onto the heel of his brother Esau. I don't know if you saw this or not, but there was a clip of an Olympic long-distance race, and around the last corner, the last... I don't know, 100 or 200 meters or so, around the last corner, one of the, the runners started to lose his balance, and there was an opponent right next to him. And so as he lost his balance, he reached out and grabbed his opponent and pulled him back, which I think is kind of hilarious, actually. But what do you do? Do you run the whole race over again? That's not the point. The point is this. That's what Jacob was trying to do to Esau in the womb. Nope, I'm going to be first. So you get the personality of Jacob in this moment, always having a plan, always knowing how to get it to work out, always thinking, always trying to stay a step ahead, always trying to react in the moment, always have a host of great ideas. Maybe that's you. Is that you? It, it can be me. And I'll tell you right now. It's exhausting. Isn't it? I gotta figure this out. I gotta have a plan. I gotta know where this goes. I gotta understand what happens tomorrow before today is even over. 
I've got to be able to wrap my head around this. I don't understand what this all is. What am I supposed to do? I'm just going to fight a little harder. I'm going to push a little more. I'm just going to keep on going. Verse 21. Those gifts were sent ahead. And Jacob remained in the camp that night. And during that night, Jacob got up and he took his two wives, his two slave women, his 11 sons, and he crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and he sent them across the stream along with all of his possessions. And Jacob was left alone. Physically exhausted. Mentally drained. Every time he closed his eyes, he imagined seeing Esau. And it wasn't an embrace that he was facing. It was the eyes of a murderer who was coming to exact his revenge. He's powerless to control his fate. He is left alone with his anxiety, his fear, his dread of tomorrow. Absolutely alone. And if that's you and you're watching the flickering light of the torches of your family as they disappear into the night, I don't care how much of an introvert you are. That is not the enjoyable type of being alone. So Jacob is feeling this weakness, this vulnerability, this this anxiety. He's got no control over the next day. He has no clue. I take that back. He has a clue of what awaits him. He's certain of what awaits him. He's wrestling in his heart. He's fighting. And now you know the feelings of Jacob. Let me, let me say this real quick. It's, it's kind of a, a side um, application, but I think it's really important. Our churches, our, our 21st century Americanized Christianity celebrates strength, power, confidence, and victory. And, and, and we should in Christ. But we despise and fear weakness and doubt. We view those things as a sign of failure. We, we might even view those things as a lack of faith. Don't. Don't. Because when you do that, and real life happens, living in a fallen world, a broken place where people are continuing to live according to their own sinful imaginations and finding creative ways to sin each day for themselves against you, when you get to that place where you have this dream or this ideal of what you want to have happen, when you expect that everything is going to be perfect and confident and strong, but what you face is weakness and doubt, worry, you've set yourself up for failure. Not only have you set yourself up for failure, you have set those people around you up for failure. In fact, you have created an atmosphere where they cannot admit their weakness to you. They can't confess anything in vulnerability. And without saying This, what you are communicating to them, is just be like Jacob and fight a little harder, you'll be fine. 
you'll figure it out. Man, we're weak. We are weak. We don't know if our plans will work. We, we don't know what tomorrow holds. We, we, we don't understand why things are happening. We can't wrap our heads around struggles in our own lives or in the lives of those people that we love. And listen, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. In those moments, God shows up. So, so, so remember that. Jacob is sitting there all alone with his thoughts. Okay, tomorrow I think I'm going to be murdered. Tomorrow I'm going to see the face of this person who's been angry at me for 20 years. If he's not going to murder me, he's just going to make me miserable. T tomorrow, the people who I love the most are going to be exposed and vulnerable, and I have no way of protecting them. There is absolutely no way you're sleeping that night, by the way. You can be as alone as you want. It can be dark as you, it, it, it can possibly get. There is no way that, that sleep is coming to you because you just continue to play in your head over and over again. Tomorrow, I die. Tomorrow is going to be miserable. What am I going to do tomorrow? All right, I sent, I sent wave upon wave upon wave upon wave of gifts to try to appease my brother. wonder if that's going to work. I put my, my family on the animals and sent them. Is that going to work? I split my camps up into two. Is that going to work? I, and just when you don't think it can get any worse, in the absolute darkness of night, some random dude shows up, throws Jacob in a headlock, and begins wrestling with him all night. Because that's exactly what Jacob needed in that moment, right? You ever had that happen? And, and I know, I know, I know. I... I, I, I praise God that he is merciful and he does not answer me out of heaven sometimes. But there are moments in my life, I've had many of them even recently, where I've simply looked up to heaven and be like, seriously? Um, I'm not superstitious in the slightest. Don't believe in karma, even a little. But I promise you, do not offer the prayer to God, what next? He knows. That should be good enough. <laughs> Look at verse 24. Jacob was left alone, and a man... I'm just going to read the rest of the chapter and, and go back through it. Jacob was left alone. A man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when that man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck or touched Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. Then he said to Jacob, let me go. It's daybreak. But Jacob said, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. What's your name, the man asked. Jacob. He replied, your name will no longer be Jacob, it'll be Israel. You've struggled with God and with men and men and have prevailed. And Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? And he blessed Jacob there. Jacob then named the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, he said, yet my life has been spared. And the sun shone on him as he passed by Penuel, limping because of his hip. And that's why today, the Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle that is at the hip socket because he struck Jacob's hip socket at the thigh muscle. A little trivia thrown in at the end. Thank you, Moses. So at some point in this, this, this bizarre wrestling match, Jacob becomes aware of the fact that he is wrestling with God. And what you find is Jacob refuses to let go. He refuses to give in. And, and I, 
I could be pressed on this, and this is just opinion, so I don't know where I need to stand on the stage that you know this is opinion, okay? I believe that it's out of personal frustration that Jacob is holding on to God. I think he's like, you did this. It's your fault. You're the one that told me to go home. You know Esau lives there. You know what this meant for me. This is you. And, and then he just kind of grabs onto God. And, and, and it's kind of funny that in the middle of that, this personal frustration, this absolute refusal to, to let go, it, it's all directed at God. And, and I think Jacob forgets that God's the one that initiated this. God was not caught unaware in this wrestling match. God is the one who showed up because God wanted to accomplish something in him. So at some point in this wrestling match, and this might be the thing that helped Jacob realize who he was wrestling against, God stops being meek. And he touches Jacob's hip and it dislocates. The meekness is having the power to accomplish something but holding it back intentionally. Well, God, God ceases that meekness and instead at some point just like, fine, and touches him. And, and, and I don't like the, the CSB's translation where it says that he struck Jacob's hip. Almost every other translation, I believe, gets it right besides the Christian Standard Bible in this one, where it says he touched his hip. The word that is used there is literally touched. It's nothing special. It means he touched. Touch. So I don't know how many of you grew up watching WWF or WWE. I mean, I grew up in the era of the, the Polish hammer. Right? That's right. Yeah, see? Right? Superfly snooker, the superfly splash. The camel clutch by the Iron Sheik. I don't know who it was, but it's my favorite move. The claw. And then some of you young ones, it's like, okay, yeah, whatever. The rock bottom. Stone cold stunner. Put all those aside. The greatest finishing move in all of wrestling is the touch. Because up to that point, there was this, this man versus man, this somewhat equal wrestling match, at least it seemed to be, and then all of a sudden, the one who was really winning touched the hip of Jacob. And it went from man versus man to God versus small, insignificant child. And that's the moment Jacob's life turned around. See, all his life. Jacob has had a plan. Jacob's been fighting. He's been working. He's been trying to figure it all out. E even in this upcoming, upcoming uh, meeting with Esau, he's, he's got this idea. If I just do this, if I send the waves, if I split up the camps, if I, if I do all these things, then, then maybe, maybe, no. But what God has done is touching his hip, dislocating his hip, he has crippled him. Have any of you had a dislocated joint? I've had one. It was my thumb. And I curled up in the fetal position, wept, shook, and my children thought I was going to die. A hip is significantly different. What God has done by dislocating his hip is he has taken away Jacob's self sufficiency. He's given him an injury that's going to keep him from being able to win anything in his own strength. So for the first time in Jacob's life, all he could do was, was hang on 
in his helplessness, in his pain, in his anguish, in his agony, all he could do was cling to the very one who with a word could crush him. Many times, the only way God can get into your heart and take the position in your life that he should take is when he dislocates something that you hold on to to make you strong. Guys, we all want to change, right? I mean, I don't know any person, believer or not a believer, who'd be like, nope, I'm perfect. I don't want to change at all. We all want to change. None of us want to be wounded. We, we, we all want to be blessed, but no one wants to beg. And all of a sudden here, for the very first time, instead of being self-sufficient, instead of coming up with his own way to get what he wants, in these moments, suddenly, Jacob needs to beg. Bless me now. He's, he's pleading for it as he holds on to this very dangerous God-man and, and, and I think we, we, we miss some of that pleading, some of that begging here in Genesis chapter 32. But if you were to go to Hosea chapter 12, what you find is Hosea offers a commentary on this moment. And, and what he says is that, that, that Jacob wept and he sought God's favor. He begged for God's grace, his mercy, his blessing. He's just holding on and he's crying out, God, I'm not letting go because I got nothing else. Absolutely nothing else. I am not in control. Jacob's broken. And he's holding on to God and he's saying, show me your favor. I need it because I know I'm not in control. I know you are. This is a first for Jacob. And as he begs and as he pleads... God is pleased. God is pleased and decides to bless him and rename him. He, he asks his name. What is, what is your name? And, and the response, I think when you read it, the, the, uh, the conversation just is a little, little different. But, but when you read it, it's kind of like, well, you misses something. So, so Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Verse 27, what's your name? The man asked. Jacob, he replied, almost like it's this argument. I, I, would, I would disagree with that. I believe in that moment, it took a second or two for, for Jacob to respond and give this man his name because it's as much of a confession as it is as an answer. So what's your name? Afraid you were going to ask that. Jacob. The heel grabber. The deceiver. The one who has a history of manipulating to get what he wants. One who lied in order to accomplish what, what he wanted, to get the blessing. And God says, okay, not anymore. Now your name's Israel. See, everything about your past, Jacob, is no longer you. Your identity it's not in your baggage. It's not in your foolish choices. You are not your shame. You are not your past. Your identity is in me and in my activity for you. Your name is Israel. God fights. 
And, and so what Jacob had to realize were, were two very significant things that every single one of us needs to realize. And I'm going to tell you this. God will spare no tears to get you to realize it. Realize it sooner rather than later before he's got to step in and dislocate something important from your life. Recognize this. You are weak. Stop trying to be so self-sufficient. I mean, this comes in all shapes and sizes. I mean, I'm going to earn my way to heaven. No, you're not. God makes that clear. All of those things that you are putting in the bank, saying, that's going to get me some good grace in heaven. That's going to get me some good grace in heaven. That's going to get me some good grace in heaven. God says, those things make me sick to my stomach. I gave you my son, Jesus Christ. You're like, nah, I got this. No, you don't. You need Christ. Christ Jesus died for you. He took your place on the cross. And he doesn't ask for you to do something miraculous or amazing to be saved. He simply asks you for to bow your knee and cry out, Jesus, I need you as my Savior. That's it. But you're not just weak there, believer. You're still weak. You're still weak. You can accomplish nothing good on your own. You can't solve a problem on your own. Man, you just keep fighting and fighting, and I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to figure this out. And God goes, Now what are you going to do? That could be a source of great discouragement until you recognize the second thing that Jacob needed to realize. Not only that he was weak, he could glory in that weakness because God was fighting for him. It's not up to him. It's not up to Jacob. It's not up to Jacob to figure this all out. God fights for you. So I, I kind of showed my hand a little at the beginning. <laughs> Turn to Psalm 46. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know. I don't think it's difficult for us to apply those two lessons of Jacob's life into our lives right now. I'm fighting. I will confess that. I'm swinging like hard as I can. There's some things, uh, I'm going to get this. Are you? What God needed Jacob to understand, and what he needs us to understand is this. That we have one refuge. We have one strength. It's not in any plans that we can come up with. It's not in any wonderful ideas. That one refuge, that one strength, is a helper who is always found in times of trouble. So what are we supposed to do? Psalm 46, verse 10. Some of your 
translations will say, be still and know that I am God. But that misses the idea of what's actually happening here. There's a fight. There's a war. There's energy being exerted and there is just eruptions and explosions and all these things are happening. And what the psalmist says in verse 10 is this, better translated, stop your fighting. Know that I am God. Exalted among the nations and exalted on the earth. The Lord of armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. When God fights for us, when God fights for us, it, it, it's, it's like your, your, your child being afraid of the big bad dog in the neighborhood. It's actually probably only about this big and it's just yippy. And that child leaps into your arms and you hold them and, and the dog's like yippee and suddenly the kid is no longer afraid. The kid's like, oh, look at the puppy. See, God fights for you as he carries you. God fighting for you is like when the, the bully comes at you hard at school, calls you all the names, gives you all the threats, but then you're walking hand in hand with daddy and that same bully walks up to you Go ahead. Even if he was to say, yeah, well, I'm going to, yeah. The kid's like, go ahead, Dad. God fighting for you is, is knowing that you will never be left on your own to fight for yourself. What are you going through right now? Is it a sickness? The difficulty at work, the bruised relationships, is it just uncertainty? Guys, stop fighting and know that I am your God. Exalted among the nations, exalted on the earth, the Lord of armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. May we rest in the perfect protection that he offers us. Father, thank you for your goodness to us, your grace, your strength, your mercy. God, I don't know what people are wrestling with. I can't even imagine. I know what I'm wrestling with, and that means that there is certainly time for us to repent and stop fighting on our own. I pray, Father, that you would take the weapons from my hands. God, none of us want to be wounded. We all want to be helped. We all want to be, be, be in your presence. We all want your your gracious and kind right hand guiding us. We all want you to fight for us. And yet we also want to be strong, and that makes absolutely no sense. And so, Father, we know, we admit, and we confess that sometimes we need you to dislocate things in our lives. Lord, may we see that earlier rather than later. God, I pray we would find you our, our help in trouble, our refuge and our strength. May we rest in your arms as you fight for us. It's in the name of our matchless Savior, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.